Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with the infamous John Kaplan. Cap, how are you this morning? I'm doing fantastic, buddy. Really looking forward to today's conversation going to be great. Hey, Cap, our guest is a general partner at the VC firm Charles River Ventures, and he decided to become a VC after running marketing in a startup for seven years. Having raised money from VCs, he thought there ought to be a better way to practice venture, to be helpful, respectful, and to recognize that founders are the ones that create the value. So in his career, Esar has been featured on the Forbes Midas list of top tech investors in 2012, 2014, 2015. And he's ha- he's been a lead investor or almost a seed investor in more than 40 founding startup teams. Isar is a six-time unicorn and a decacorn investor. He's been involved with four multi-billion dollar IPOs, iBasis, Vertuza, RPX, and HubSpot and several multi-billion dollar M&A transactions. He's currently on the board of Cyber Reason, Drift, Catch, Wordway, Zoba, and Upstream Security. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm not so sure I could even get in there. And on an interesting note, in the past, Esau has served as a captain in the Israeli Defense Force for four years. Now, when he's not helping startups, Izar loves to race cars and trucks competitively through international deserts in off-road rally races that last for over 6,000 miles, Cap, 6,000 miles. Cap, please say hello to my good friend, a humble and super interesting person, Izar Armini. Izar, uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, it's a great honor to speak with you with your background of incredible success in, um, in um, you know, launching some and uh, helping launch some uh, just unbelievable stories and unicorns. And so we're really, really happy to have you. Thank you for, for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, nice to, to meet you, Cap. And John, thank you for that very generous and uh, exaggerated introduction, but I think you forgot <laughs> to mention uh, my most important accomplishment that I've been a disciple of the great John McMahon for many, many years, more than 10, uh, learned from you on so many boards. And I think uh, 70% of what I'm going to say today, I'm probably just repeating what you told me. So it's going to be pretty boring for you, I think. Uh, you're being, you're being too nice, you saw. Really generous introduction. Yeah, thanks. You're being too nice. Hey, Isa, let's start with you getting involved in the VC world in the first place. You know, you made the shift 
to the other side of the table, the VC world. And probably it, it helped your perspective as a VC having been on both sides of the table. Can you can you talk a little bit about one, why you made the switch and two, how it gave you a different perspective in your role at CRV? Yeah, I mean, we 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 had a, a bootstrap company in Israel in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and it wasn't out of any ideology, just that there was no money. I mean, that's how you you start a company. Uh, so you did services, performed services, uh, ate ramen noodles, took no salary, and the money you brought back from services, you built a product slowly, uh, and always tried to be like profitable or cashflow book even. Then the venture industry started in Israel, a specific year, 1992, a bunch of funds were formed. And th those people, you know, they were new to the business. They were learning as they were going. And we said, fine, we, we, we can raise more money. We could be competitive with the international companies that we competed with. All of them were venture backed. So we went on the road with our deck to raise capital. And it was so hard and humiliating and, and just unpleasant. Like they called our baby ugly, <laughs> John. Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, and you know, they'll have comments on, you know, the cash flow in year five from now doesn't look quite right. Like who knows? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what have been year five, will we survive or not? So it wasn't pleasant. It was very like, uh, we have the power, we have the money, we are the kingmakers. And they kind of, we had to do that to raise money. The people came on our board and, and it was not helpful. They did not provide like true value of where do I find great salespeople? How do I position the company? You know, who can I partner with? So when we sold the company, I said, okay, the job looks interesting. I, I didn't fully understand what it was. I was some kind of a consultant, but they have money. What does that mean exactly? I certainly did not know that you could personally make a lot of money. That was completely not transparent to me. But I thought it could be an important role. It could be an interesting job. You don't need to be an asshole, excuse my language. Right. So, no, you know, I so said I could do that by being empath empathic to, to the people, the entrepreneurs, understanding where they come from, understanding their hardships. Doesn't mean that you don't need to be critical. Actually, you have to. But as, as, as a friend, as someone that is fully invested in their success, that led me to kind of uh, coming here to the States where people have been doing that for longer than Israel. Uh, and I was very, very fortunate to join this firm, CRV, uh, that was started in 1970. So by the time I got here in 1997, they were already, you know, 27 years in business. Uh, we are celebrating our 52nd anniversary. Uh, we did actually last month. So we've been in business for many, many years. And I felt the people there knew what they're doing, but they did it from like a place of respect and, and empathy. And I think those two things were missing in my experience. And that's what I wanted to kind of, you know, yeah. push for. 
Now, Isar, in your time, you've done like 40 seed investments, which, you know, most people would say is pretty risky versus, you know, doing growth investments when a company's already doing well and it's starting to scale. Why did you take the route to do so many seed investments? Uh, I actually have an excellent story to tell you. Okay. <laughs> so before I joined CRV, one of the general partners knew a, a Russian immigrant engineer that oh, yeah. worked for him in a, in a prior CRV company called Applicon. This is like way, way back, right? This is late 70s, early 80s. And the guy wanted to start a company. He, his English was not great, as I think you know. Yes. He was not very presentable. There were no customers. There was no product. But he, he had like what we call at CRV a great founder market fit. If you cannot look yet at product market fit, at least seek founder market fit. And that person, Sam Geisberg, had a fantastic background. You know, who's a, he studied math in World War II in a bunker, as you guys probably know this story. Uh, taught himself, uh, came through Israel to the U.S. Uh, and, and worked for more than a decade in the in a computer-aided design industry. industry. And he had this insight, right, that, that things could be done better. And I'm not going to go into kind of the tech. So my partner, uh, Don Fetterson, gave him seed money. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like a million door for twenty five percent of the company. I may be wow. wrong. Wow! Wow! Uh, and then something worse happened. Uh, the industry, venture industry, although existed for like twenty years, ten years at a time, went into a very very long recession. The nineteen eighty seven Wall Street crash really compressed returns and limited partners, the people who are giving money to our funds were not interested in pursuing that risky industry anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard. There was no liquidity. There were like seven, eight years of no liquidity. If we talk about down rounds. There are no rounds. You know, up, there are no rounds. Yeah, right. <laughs> so CRV, although they had some successes before, they could not raise the next fund. Mm -hmm. They went and talked to everyone on the planet. They flew to Singapore and Japan. They could not raise a fund for the life of them. They actually thought that's the end of CRV. Wow. And this is the late 80s. But they already had the seed investment in, in PTC, in Parametric Technologies Corporation. Mm. So as you guys know better than I do, uh, PTC, uh, once they launched a product, it was almost an immediate uh, product market fit once the product worked. And right. sales grew very rapidly. The company went public, I think, in 1989, if I'm not yes. mistaken. John, you were yes. there. So right. We went public at $11 million. Exactly. $10, $11 million. <clears throat> but it had the market cap of over $100 million, which was big for the time. Yeah. And suddenly CRV could show their limited partners, I don't know, like a 20x return one seed software investment made the fund. Wow. Allowed them to raise a fund in 1992. That actually led to a series of fantastic funds in the 90s that were like 8X and 16X and amazing performance. But if we want to be honest and frank, it all started really 
from a seed investment in PTC. That's amazing. Wow. So the, how about that for an answer, John? That's, that's an amazing answer. story. And it's a story that I didn't know. I, had I didn't no, know that either. I knew who Don Federson was. God bless his soul. But um, yeah. I didn't know that he... And that that was the story behind CRV. That's a fantastic. So we we very very much believe in the formation stage investment. Okay, it used to be Series A. That was called Series A, not seed. Today it will be considered pre-seed. But the seed Series A are the investments where you buy a lot of equity with not a lot of capital, mm-hmm. but but you're there for the formation stages. Mm-hmm. There is a founder or group of founders. Uh, they need help. They need a venture capitalist, if he or she is any good, to help them maybe get one or two first like friendly customers, but more so to help them interview that and then recruit great executives who are better than the founders on, on some domain. Right. And help that like like that phase from from seed or A to a B where you have already like 10, 15 million dollar revenue. It's a scale phase. It's a very, very hard phase. Many, many founders don't kind of cross that. And that is our role. That's how we earn our equity. We take a lot of risk, as you know, as you said, you're right, more than 50 in my career. Uh, and you mentioned all those achievements, but let's talk about the other side. More than 50%, more than 20% of the 40 companies I, I, I listed eventually went bust. Yeah, right. And by the way, people should know that when they ask, should I join a startup? We'll talk about it hopefully later. <laughs> the good news for everyone that all those 50 don't go bust, you know, one, two, three in a fund will become multi, multi-billion dollar outcomes. They'll drive great return for everyone. They'll pay for the losses. And, and people will be highly, highly successful career-wise, money-wise, and it can drive the next generation, next generation. That's how so there's works. so many people or companies that are looking for that first seed investment. So how do you discover or what type of criteria do you have to decide, okay, this is the one I'm going to make a gamble on. Is that, is this, does this go back to the founder and founder market fit? Yes, but some other criteria. And you've had some fabulous VCs on the show. I listened to the Niraj uh, session the other day, and I think he gave a really good answer. Um, you know, for us, very practically, there is a top-down and bottoms-up approach. And it's pretty half-half. So what is a top-down? Top-down is we sit in a room and say, okay, we believe in the next few years, the cloud will happen. I'm, I'm making things up. Right. And what areas are going to be fundamentally disrupted? Uh, are there multi-billion companies that, that could be moved aside? Let's look for those companies. And so we, we kind of meet with many, many companies. For example, we had a, we had a theory about uh, the call center industry that was very legacy driven. It was very dr- kind of hardware connected to the telecom infrastructure. Yes. We had some early wins there and we thought the cloud will, will really disconnect telecom from the soft layer. Let's look for a, a SaaS. It wasn't called SaaS at the time, but a, a cloud oriented. And, and I actually worked on something that was okay, but not great. And a new uh, investor came to CRV and says, well, what are you working on, blah, blah, blah. 
I see on Twitter, there's something that everyone is talking about. It's called Zendesk. And I said, mm. I don't think Twitter is a good place to find companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to listen to what he says. So he contacted that, that team. Turns out it was a three-person team. Wow. Wow. They, they lived in an apartment in Denmark. And they said, venture capital, we don't know what it is. Who are you? Are you going to buy software from us? It's only $300. <laughs> so my partner, DevDat, John, whom, whom you know. Yes, I know that. Basically hopped on a, on a red eye to Copenhagen, knocked on their door at 9 in the morning, wake them up, said, hi, I'm DevDat. And they said, you don't need to buy software. You can buy it with a credit card. And I said, no, I did not come to buy software. I came to invest in that. <laughs> Fast forward, uh, that became one of the very best next generation uh, help desk, uh, call center uh, software company. Uh, we bought uh, a third of the company for a million and a half as a seed investment. Wow. I think, John, we had like $5 million in the company when it went public, not more than that, because they were so, the product market fit was so great. They never needed a lot of money. And we owned maybe 22% when it went public. Wow, and, congrats. you know, it, it reached public market caps as high as $15 billion. So that, that is the, 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 the kind of top down. You, you have a, a theory, you have a theme, you go look for companies. And, and, and honestly, uh, uh, in, in full kind of transparency, that is a better fit for slightly later, later stage companies, right? Because the market exists. Yes, it just correct. happens that Sandesk was, was successful before they raised any money. Um, more than half of their business is the opposite, is a bottoms up. No theory, no models, just get introductions from great people that you know, meet entrepreneurs, then I really, really do look for that founder market fit. What did she do in her prior life that makes her an expert here? What insight does she have um, that, that will um, make her like a great entrepreneur? And we make those companies and maybe our invest, involvement with HubSpot will be like that. We didn't have a theory about you know, marketing automation or inbound marketing that terms don't exist. Ryan, you know, was just an amazing, amazing sales leader. Also, by the way, from PTC. PTC. Yeah, exactly. Right. Worked for me. Yeah. And uh, we, we actually got another person that we backed before, David Cancel. His company was acquired by Hotspot and we became shareholders. So it's both uh, uh, top down, bottoms up. Uh, the earlier stage you go, it's probably more bottoms up. If you skew as a venture capitalist, more Series B, Series C, it becomes mostly kind of top down. They have models and they follow those models. If you're trying to keep those early, you know, you talked about early stage formation of the company. If you're trying to keep them, you know, off the guardrails, what are some common mistakes that you see that some of the founders want to do? Or, do you, or are there certain best practices to keep the people and the founders, you know, within the guardrails. Well, man, th this is not a one-hour conversation. <laughs> okay, so I, a pretty I good question that, then. <laughs> yeah, I believe that you actually don't learn much from your wins. You know, everyone brags and kind of have tombstones. Sure. I have tombstones. 
but uh, every success story is actually quite different and very unique. But if you are uh, honest enough to examine your mistakes and failures, you will find commonalities. Yes. It doesn't yes. mean that you'll not make no, no mistakes the next time, but at least you should avoid, try to avoid the mistakes you already made. And I've made many. And the entrepreneurs are back to make more. Um, I think, so, so again, it's a long thing, happy to kind of, but let me give you one or two. Yeah. I think the most common one is not waiting for strong product market fit. Trying to go too fast, right? Trying to scale a company too fast and spending too much money, right? Yeah. So especially if you are a first-time entrepreneur, you're terrified, justifiably so, from the VCs that they may not want to invest in the next round. So you try to create, get to a million-dollar error by brute force. And from there to five million dollars, each of them is like a milestone, a million errors for the A, five million dollars for the B, and so forth. And I understand that. I understand psychology very, very well. You have one bet, you want that bet to be funded. Yes. The risk is that you're going to put a lot of resources, time, money, people's effort in something that is not quite right. You're going to spend most of that money for no, no result. So uh, the founder, he or she, or they, to be uh, thoughtful about the experiments they run and have a very keen ear to what the market is telling them and see the early signs of product market fit. Mm-hmm. I worked with this fantastic entrepreneur, David Cancel, yes. several yeah. times, but most recently in a company called Drift that you also, thank you very much, were yes. very instrumental in helping them. Um, and uh, there are funny stories there. I already knew the team. They were about to leave HubSpot. It was very competitive. So I just took them to lunch and said, okay, you guys are going to do a company, right? So, eh, maybe yes, maybe no. We're not talking to VCs. Very, very guarded. So I said, okay, here's an envelope. Open the envelope. There was a $10 million check, real check from CRV. Wow. David and Elias new company. And says, why are you giving us money? We haven't told you what you're building. And I said, I know, no, no, but it's an investment in people, right? So you guys probably something in your domain, which is marketing automation. No, we can't take it. Said, okay, David, I'm going to leave. If you're not going to take it, it will be a very, very big tip for the waiter. I don't think they, they deserve that. <laughs> right. So reluctantly, I left. Reluctantly, they took the check. We got to be the, the first investors in Drift. But So they took the check. They took it. Hit it, hit it. And it was, by the way, he dictated the terms. <laughs> yeah. But it was all good. So, what was his, Isar, what was his rationale, the thought process of the, the founder? Why was he hesitant? What do you think was going through his mind? You know, uh, Cap, by then he was well known and successful. This would have been his fourth or fifth startup. He was the chief product officer at HubSpot. He was not a founder, but people do give him a lot of credit for the success of a HubSpot product in engineering. So he could have raised money from anyone. Uh, he had a West Coast tour scheduled for Monday. I interrupted him on Friday. 
Uh, so uh, yeah, like he would he would have taken the money. It wasn't that, but he was also kind of hey, I'm not sure what I'm building. So after taking them, I said, okay, now now we're going to think we're going to build. And they worked out of our office. And David and Elias launched three products, working products. They had four or five engineers quickly building, uh, doing like like, uh, inbound marketing, all kinds of tactics to test. And they killed each and every one of them within like a year and a half. That was remarkable. That was such high discipline of an experienced entrepreneur Mm-hmm. that knew that he was not hearing a strong enough sucking sound from the market for what he built. The first one, believe it or not, was a workday knockout, like do better HR. It was launched with several Boston companies. People liked it, but David did not think it was strong enough. The second one was an iPhone annotation. All of them were called Drift. <laughs> and only the fourth was this what drift current incarnation, which is kind of a great way for uh, BDR, SDRs to capture leads as they appear on the website, engage with them, either directly or via bot, and have like 25% higher conversion rate, which translates, as you know, for many, many dozens of millions of dollars of extra revenue. So uh, he really uh, was disciplined. I would say that's a rare story. Uh, and the risk, if we go back to your question, is that less experience or less disciplined founder will rush to get, I would say, vanity results in order to get the next round, which is not irrational. Okay, it's rational, but it's it's wrong. Yes. And yeah. and the right way is to kind of be patient, work with your investors, make sure that they are patient, maybe that they have more capital to give you without any progress which actually did happen at Drift, and, and only start hiring. You have to have executives. You have to have a VP sales, even if you're not selling, I think. Uh, it doesn't have to have a CRO title, but someone actually tries to. Uh, but but when you move to hiring a lot, like the, the full organization, as John, as you taught me very, very well, I know the ratios, you can test me. <laughs> Uh, managers, VPs, you know, SDRs, uh, SEs, you don't want to do that until you feel that you have strong product market fit because that will translate into huge amount of doors wasted, maybe done round, maybe for sale, not good. So th- those will be some of the mistakes that I've seen. Isar, they, they, people throw around that um strong product market fit a lot. We hear it a lot on our podcast. Would you mind just like in your opinion, what is the definition of strong market fit? Product market fit. I don't, I don't know. Okay. I actually, in general, the more I do this work, the less I know. (laughs) (laughs) You have to appreciate the kind of serendipity and randomness of all that, but there are, there are indications, right? So we all know them, the the three of us. So uh, some of them will be uh, land and expand, right? Easier to land smaller deals, but they have like a natural way of expanding within the company. That's a very good sign. The next sign that I look for 
is like increased in inbound marketing uh, leads versus brute force leads. That's very, yeah. very important. Yeah. You have to start, even the, the inbound, you, you have to prime the pump. We all know that. Like it doesn't just yeah. automatically works. But if at some point there's an inflection point and people start talking about you on Twitter, like Zendesk really or, or th then, okay, okay. Like maybe I'm resonating with something here that, that was, was needed by the market. And then I would say more like uh, mechanically measuring, but that's for slightly later stage companies. Uh, net door retention is a great indication of that. Yes. Great yes. indication. And, you know, I think now like, like series B, series C investor will be looking for 120% NDR. So basically, and by the way, it also goes with at least 10% gross loss, right? So it basically mean one year one, you sold 100%, you dropped to 90, but that 90 generated actually extra 30%, right? So it gets you mm -hmm. to 120. Uh, I hope that people are able to follow my math. It's 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 not that complicated. That's kind I of followed it. I followed it, and I didn't have to take my shoes off or anything. They added. <laughs> <laughs> I told you earlier. I'm going to repeat everything you told me, and I'm going to very smart. <laughs> yeah. So NDR important. And, and 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 even and we may disagree on that. Even actually, sales efficiency, right? So, with money, and in the last ten years, people have raised insane yeah. amount of money at very high valuation. So why not? With money, you can just cover a lot of mistakes. You can kind of have almost product market fit, but not right. No one will know because you're gonna you're gonna put a lot of money in. You know, a very, very smart person once told me, very, very smart, the easiest sale in the world, if you give me two doors to sell a product that I need to sell for a door, that's very easy. Yeah, exactly. Right. That person's on the show today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if I take $500 million investment and I get to $100, 200000000 million of revenue, that's pretty easy. <laughs> you can't just do it with money. <laughs> Give a customer two doors and get the door back. <laughs> exactly. Go down uh, on the street corner anytime and make that deal happen. So, yes. Yeah. So, sales efficiency, you know, people look at that as, as uh, you know, lifetime value of, of your software divided by cost of customer acquisition, many different ways. Uh, later, not early. Later, it will be not a good number, and it's 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 okay. It should be like we should overinvest. But over time, it will converge to something that looks attractive, like a four x or three x. And those companies that are always around one, one and a half, two, you know that they actually have not hit product market fit. So mm -hmm. those will be some of the measures. But I, I admit it's not enough. Like it really is more about the management team and the founder gut. Like it's 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 a pattern recognition. It's not a formula that they hit a good nerve. And then Esar, you know, that's the the formation piece. You did go a little bit further with you know net dollar retention and stuff. But if we go back to the formation stage, and then you're helping this team out. 
you know you have to prepare them and get them ready as you explained and some are doing you know vanity sales as you explained also so what what do you think the the vc that's going to come into the next round what do they typically need to see um yeah it's it's kind of well known i would say um uh, you know even from seed to a people would like to see Iran and Melendor ARR to do the A. Uh, and that depends for a company that sells enterprise, it could be, you know, 10 customers, 10, 20 customers. Right. A company that sells like uh, low, high velocity, low ASP, there's been more, but the Melendor ARR. And I think by then they would like to see signs that the founder, uh, he or she is, is a people magnet not a people repellent. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we speculate that they are, but we don't know because when we invest, it's just the founder founders. So an early sign of a management team, I would say people with a V title, not a C title, if, if you follow my kind of thought here. Yes. But evidence that it's a good team being formed. That's for the A. And then like a year and a half, two years later for the B, uh, you want to see a company, it's actually not so much the, the ARR per se, it's more like the growth. That's a company needs to grow at least 3X year over year from that low base. So it could be 5 million, 10 million, even three, depending. But you, you want to feel as a Series B investor investing in something that in the early stages grows at least 3X. By the way, that stage is very, 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 very hard. Yeah, it's very hard. It's probably the hardest. Like it's it's not that difficult to go and get a million dollar from a couple of friendlies. Yes. If you're yeah. a decent uh, uh, founder or salesperson, I think the next stage of, of that kind of more consistent and accelerating growth is super hard. Yes. So yeah. when that, those investors come to do the B or the C, they actually want to see pretty much a full management team. And that's that's really where we are supposed to earn our our keep as early stage or formation stage venture capitalist. You know, I, I went to a business school. I have a fancy finance degree. In my title, there is capital capitalist, right? So you think that I'm a finance guy? That's not true. <laughs> the truth is, I'm nothing but a highly paid headhunter. That's who I am. Mm. I'm a headhunter. And that's how you round out the team of, yeah. of, of, amongst the uh, founders. Yeah, and it, it's 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 the softer side of that. It's not necessarily the screening, but if if the the actual hunter that we hire goes and finds a good candidate, that candidate she'll have a lot of options, and she's probably working somewhere making a few million dollars a year. Yes, and has a high 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 mortgage to pay on a very nice house. She's not going to jump into a no-name startup with founders that barely speak English and take yeah. a risk. And right. if she knows that the failure rate at that point is 50%, she'll be even more scared. Yeah. So that's where we come in and we share with them our investment thesis and hypothesis, what should happen to you, what could happen. We talk to them about similar companies within the past that already have went through that risk, growth, hyper-growth. IPO, wealth creation, industry uh, changing phases. 
And after they join, uh, then I become from a highly paid headhunter to a highly paid therapist. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Mostly a therapist. <laughs> and, and that is also important. And business school does not prepare you for that. Uh, there are tensions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that uh, you know, fictional woman that I described, she's, a, she's an executive, she's a professional, she has standards. And, and it's yin and yang. You want both. You want that professionalism, that high expectation, but you want to mix it with a vision, the can-do, that's all problems, nothing guarantee, a culture that the founders have created until that management team showed up and create something good out of that because it could, it could not actually work, right? So... Uh, a lot of conversation on both sides of teaching them how to work well together. Isar, would you mind if we stayed a little bit on that subject? Because it comes up so much in the podcast that we do. Characteristics from your perspective right now that are very attractive to you as an investor. Characteristics uh, and attributes for the the most successful people that you've ever met, um, not so much from the founder community, uh, but the when you go into the highly paid headhunter role, uh, and when you think about you know revenue builders, sort to speak, what are some of those characteristics that you have just found to be just critical and have um, have remained critical over? the years of all the years you've been doing this. Would you mind just spending a few uh, minutes yeah, talking I about that? I love that. Thank you, Kath. Thank you for the question. I love that. I've been thinking about that. I've been changing my mind. I've been writing notes. I've been throwing them for, for you know, 25 years. Yeah. Uh, but I actually ran into the answer recently, uh, and I heard it from an unexpected uh, source. I went to visit uh, one of our longest uh limited partners, Mike Donovan, he's the chief investment officer. In the investment world, CIO is chief investment officer, not chief information officer, yeah. as we all know in sales. Uh, he's a dear friend. Uh, Notre Dame has supported us for 40 years. Uh, they are investors in the very, very best managers that you know. We are, we are lucky to be one of their managers. And I've asked him, Mike, like you are well known in the industry as a great picker of VCs. It's not salespeople; it's VCs. How do you pick them? It's exactly your question, right? Because yes, let's be honest. Uh, the other way to think of venture capitalists is a money salesman. Yes, <laughs> they sell money. Right. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a it's an honest, humbling view, right? Uh, so I asked him the question, thinking it will help me also in my work and picking entrepreneurs and executives and leaders, he said, okay, we, we actually have a framework. We have six criterias. The first three are, are, are simple. We want them to be smart, energetic, and ethical. And I, I think that's kind of duh. Like, yes, like none of us have ever hired a person that we did not think was smart, energetic, and ethical. Later on, maybe it didn't work out, but we thought, we thought. kind of table stakes, right? But then he said, 
we also look for the three other criteria, which is courage, mm-hmm. discipline, mm-hmm. and humility. Uh, humility. Super interesting. Super interesting. So for me, in the context of venture capitalists, but also sales, courage is the courage of your conviction. You develop a conviction about a sales prospect, about a customer. It will, will work out, will not work out. It's going to do. And you get a lot of like opposition internal from the company, maybe from the client, customer, but you push through your conviction. You have the courage to risk your career, risk your job, risk your paycheck, but you, you, you have the courage to follow your convictions. I think that is a very, very important trait. Totally. Discipline actually goes with that, which is stick to what you said you'll do. Again, like you have the courage, but you have evidence that you may not be right. Uh, but you, like David Cancel in the example I gave, he promised himself he needed to do something, and he had the courage to do that, but the discipline to kill three early stage startups, one after the other. And by the way, it, it was not without cost. Almost all the engineers left every time that they switched because they came to build an HR system. He says, guess what, guys? On Friday, we launched. This is Monday. I'm killing it. So, uh, we came to build a HR system. We're leaving. So discipline is very, very important. Yeah. And, and, and we get that. Humility, I think, is the most interesting one and the rarest because actually in the real world, if someone is courageous and disciplined, they're probably not very humble <laughs> because you, know, you need a little bit of sharp elbows and, and thick skin. But why do I, why does Mark Donovan and Ordem, why do I look for people that are also humble? I think if you're humble, it allows you to listen well and to test your hypothesis again and again and to admit that you might have made a mistake, you might be wrong and readjust. So I like that combination of, you know, smarts, ethical, uh, energetic, but also courageous, disciplined, and humble. And and when we get that, I think something magical happens. If they're humble, they're going to reach out to other people for advice versus if if they're not humble, they think they know everything. A lot of times they feel, at least some people I've run into, feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room all the time. So they don't actually accept any type of you know, advice that they could get from others. And in a funny way, they are, they repel other people, other people then shy away and say, okay, this guy thinks he knows everything. So there's no need for me to speak with them anymore. Well, in technology too, Johnny, with humility, and I love what you highlighting this one, Isar, because the, the, the most elite companies today, they have no choice but to be masterful <clears throat> at, what the buyer is telling them and how the buyer is reacting to what they're doing. And I find that the, the most elite companies today are outside in. I also think humility is also an outside in mentality versus an inside out mentality. And that's a big one that we look at in force management. We go into these companies and we can tell when these teams are more inside out and they're missing a whole world out there of like, when we ask the question, yeah, but, how does your buyer buy? You just told me what you've built, and but how are they consuming it? And 
what information are you getting back from the marketplace? So I think you nailed it with your with your highlight on humility. I think it's a really powerful concept today, all the way down the chain from a seller's point of view, from a founder's point of view, from an investor's point of view, from a seller's point of view. That's a real good one. Thank you for those. Yeah, we're doing a podcast so your, your audience cannot see, but I'm nodding my head very violently. To yeah. <laughs> hey, Esar, I want to completely switch gears now because of some of the characteristics that we just spoke about and talk about the off-road racing that you do in these international deserts, which you have to have some of the same characteristics in order to compete I mean, things are going to break down. You might get lost. There's a whole bunch. Of, you might be hungry. You might be tired. There's a whole bunch. Yeah, you're you're basically on a team with someone else. Can you talk a little bit about first? Give the audience an overview of what it is that you do, and then let's let's dig into that a little bit. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's kind of an odd uh, hobby. Um, we compete in very, very long range off-road races. Uh, they tend to be, call it like 6,000 miles, 10,000 kilometers uh, over multiple days, typically two to three weeks per race. Much of that, most of that is actually true off-road. Dunes, you know, salt flats, you know, rough, rough, rough terrain and sometimes roads just to get to camp. And it is a race of speed, of course, but also navigation and mechanicking because every day something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And you have, you have to have enough of a MacGyver kind of ability attitude to fix it while you're racing. You carry very few tools and spare parts, but it's enough to kind of get to camp usually and then at camp, we, we meet our mechanics who are our real heroes. I'll say why in a second. And they, we get to camp at like, I don't know, 10 p.m., 12 a.m. We eat something. We go to sleep for a couple of hours. You don't really sleep because of all the noise at the camp. But you wake up at 4, 6, you start again. The mechanics, they get to camp all at the same time because they have driven whatever, 500 kilometers to get here. Then they start fixing whatever we broke wow. with their uh, mobile workshop. They work until six in the morning. Maybe they get a shower, maybe not. They grab something to eat and they get back into their truck and they drive until eight at night. So they do not sleep. They do not sleep like, like normal in a bed for two weeks. They may grab like an hour, hopefully not behind the wheel, but there are three of them so one can sleep, but they don't really. So that's and kind you're, of an you're, you're blowing over this two week. You're saying these races are two weeks. These are not like a two day race. These are two week races. Well, nobody's going six thousand miles in two days. In Holy smokes! But let, let me give you a sense of what it is. I I'll share a screen. At least you guys can see that. Uh, can you see my my screen? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> You see the the big the big one? Yes, truck, giant truck. You see them changing? Yeah, you you turned it over. Were you in it when it turned over? You see that's do you see that picture with a turnover? Yes. yes. Were you uh, in it when it turned over? Yes. <laughs> wow. 
You see the, the shattered yeah. glass. So you you go you have to go through all those things. I'll stop the sharing. It's uh, how'd you get involved in the CSAR? And like I know you know obviously I, I think we highlighted it. you're from Israel. You're familiar with the desert. You're uh, but how do you get involved in this? You also have which which we haven't talked about is a highly highly disciplined uh, military career. Uh, kind of tell us a little bit about the how do you get how do you get involved in in what does it represent to you? Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I'm from Israel. So in Israel, as you know, a military service is compulsory. You yeah, do that yeah. instead of going to college. And then some people go to college or not. But from 18 to 21, 22, you're in the military. That's what you do. Uh, and I grew up uh, in a small community on the Lebanese border. Uh, and the kind of the 70s and 80s were rough years. We had a lot of uh, bombardment and, and rockets coming from, from the other direction. Uh, so when I got into the military, there was one of those periodic wars. And I got into, uh, we went into Lebanon uh, as an 18-year-old. Which is 300 uh, yards from your back door of your house, right? Yeah, the border. But we went Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a whole different topic. I, by the way, I'm so so appreciative, Cap and McMahon, the fact that you brought that military service to your your show here. Um, you know, I, I listened to uh, uh, Anthony Anderson episode yeah. it was remarkable. I like the Masood Khalil. Yeah, uh, so, so I, I totally understand some of those experiences, but I really appreciated you guys. Are bringing that voice and helping like corporate America and startups understand the talent that comes from that background and what they can do. Because despite now the US, we've been in wars for, for 20 years post 9 11, it's still not a very, very big number or proportion of the personality. And most people live comfortable, peaceful lives. So for them, a military you know, veteran is unknown at best and sometimes actually ne negative connotation. So um, thank you. Thank you for, for highlighting that. I, I really appreciate that as, as a military person myself. But anyway, in, in 82, I, I went to the service. A few months after I got enrolled, uh, war started. And initially it was kind of, hey, at least this one is a justifiable war. Because <laughs> as, as, as Anthony talked and his... Um, episode as a soldier you very quickly lose what is the purpose and why am i doing that and why are we you know causing so much misery and losing lives so so we had that too i mean in truth the israel invasion of lebanon became our vietnam but at an 18 years old especially if your your hometown is being bombarded for 20 years you feel you're doing something good so i went there uh, frankly, I was bored as an as a, as a enlisted person. I did not feel challenged. So I, I applied for military, sorry, for officer course. Uh, and I did that and I came back to the unit and I, I led men for the next um, two years. That's a great experience because you're 20 years old. Your equivalent person in the U.S., my, you know, uh, maybe a drink in college, maybe taking chemistry and, oh my God, the test will be so hard. But at 20, <laughs> they give you 60 people that are your age 
plus minus two years. Some of them are older. Some of them are more experienced. They're not going to take your authority for granted. They're going to challenge you every minute. You have to show them that you are professional, that you are considerate, you're ethical, and you lead by example. Your rank means nothing. Uh, and you do it in, a, in an enemy land and under fire. So th that was, uh, you know, a, a, a formative experience. I will not say this is 100%, you know, transferable to startup life. Okay, let's not be... That would be too much to say. It's not true. But many, many of the characteristics of the people that come out of that, come out of that experience are relevant. And it will make them great, you know, employees of startups, great founders. Uh, I, I just checked before the, uh, the recording. I was on to see, I think, 20% of the entrepreneurs that I backed. So it will be uh, eight companies where military background. Wow. Uh, wow. Some Israelis, of course, but some are not, like Marines, U.S. Marines, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force. Yeah. Yeah, and then Esar, a lot of the um, traits that you picked up in the military have to be applicable to your racing. I mean, to be, and some of the ones that you even talked about for, you know, good VCs, being disciplined, being, have perseverance, being humble, being patient, all those things, because as you said, it's going to be a long, arduous journey. It's going to, things are going to go wrong. And you always yeah. find out a lot about a person's character when things start to go wrong, right? Absolutely. It's not in the good times. It's always in the bad times. So, Absolutely. and you learn a lot about that when, you know, the truck's breaking or you're lost or you can't find your way or you're hungry or you're tired. Yeah. I was thinking about that again. It's lots of lots of parallels that are pretty obvious. One that you asked me, and I thought, how relevant it is, is preparation. Hmm. And let's start from the end. You know, best laid laid plans or whatever. The plan ends when the shooting starts, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 a maybe military analogy. Von Mulkey. It's a quote from it's, Von Mulkey. Yeah. yeah. It's also yeah. like Mike Tyson used to say, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I use that next time. That's that's a better one. And that, that's true for what we do, right? For like, but still, I think there's a lot of value for planning and preparation because it's not so much about that plan that you picked, but actually considering alternative plans, considering actions and reactions, how to overcome difficulties. So that three of outcomes that you think through as you make a plan and you have visited each node in the tree mm. and you consider what to do, that is what helps you in racing, military, but it sure helps you in, in, in military, sorry, in, in, uh, in, in, in startup life too, because yeah, like you, you are, you are, uh, a salesperson, you're on a very important customer meeting, you know, the computer doesn't work, Wi-Fi doesn't work. Something's going to go wrong, especially at the end of the very, quarter. Very right? badly. Oh, yeah. Oh, you guys must have this problem. So, no, don't have the problem. Thanks for the meeting. Yeah, <laughs> so right. You haven't thought in advance on actions, reactions, alternative plans, you, you'll be lost. You'll be like shell-shocked. 
they leave the room and, and you have to fly home with your tail between your legs. But if you have planned, it's actually not exactly what you plan to say. That is important too. But if you considered what to do, so, so yeah, you visit it. You know what to say. You put them on a different track and suddenly you find a different value proposition to sell them. Or you, you find a different champion. Or suddenly there is a dynamic there that is much more favorable to you. So I, I like that, like we do it in racing. For example, we don't get a map for the race. Oh, and you don't. we don't get a GPS either. Like 10 wow. minutes before the race, that's so people won't cheat. They give us like a set of instructions that are pictorial. Do you guys remember like the MapQuest thing that we used to print before? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's a MapQuest-like printout that covers 400, 500 kilometers. Like it's a uh, like drive two miles, direction 270. You'll see three stones. Make a 90 degrees turn to the right. Next page. So you, you get only there. get landmarks. You only get landmarks and distance. You get there, there are two stones or four stones. Am I in the right place? Was I really in 270 or maybe 275 on a different, different road? So uh, we cannot prepare that, but we, we prepare the car. We carry spare parts. We know like what the terrain will be, so we kind of adjust our, our air pressure. So we prepare a load around that. But, but even that, like there's a way to say, okay, this was supposed to happen. It's not happening. Therefore, I made a mistake. Three steps backwards, turn around. You, you have to have a prepared mind that mistakes will happen, errors will happen, and how to fix it. That's, I think, the value of preparation is very applicable across those three disciplines. What about collaboration? I can imagine just the, the uh, number of people involved in the whole process. It sounds like two people, at least two people in the vehicle, somebody so driving, somebody navigating. This big truck. We have six in a team, but three in the race. Yeah. A driver, a navigator, and a mechanic. So the coordination and collaboration is huge. Uh, because unlike like maybe a Formula One driver that has seen the same turn a thousand times, we're th doing a thousand turns, seeing each of them just once, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't know what's what's around the corner. So naturally, a driver will slow down pretty significantly before a corner, then accelerate. It takes time. You can add, you can add easily an hour to an eight hours day just by driving appropriately, carefully. But if you're a team and I'm, say, the navigator and I am reading those instructions, so I'll tell my driver, 500 yards, 90 degrees turn to the left, off camber, meaning the truck will be leaning against, against the, um, the turn, uh, you know, loose rock. And there is a cliff, <laughs> a cliff on the other side. And you will drive into a dust of cloud because cars have been there 20 seconds, 30 seconds before us. And I'm saying 500 yards, slow down. 300 yards, slow down. 100 yards, 50 yards now. And he sees nothing, he sees dust. So when you have very, very high collaboration and trust, my partner will literally take the wheel and do a very hard turn to the left, actually push, push the, the accelerator and the brake at the same time to get better traction because I told him there's gravel. 
And if I was correct, he will emerge out of the, doubt, the cloud of dust and will be on the road, not on the cliff, and we haven't lost a second. So that type of- Sounds like a lot of trust involved there too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, do you switch roles? Let's say, you know, something happens in a role. I hurt my shoulder or something like that. Now I can't drive. I got to read the map. Do you have to be prepared to do a different role? We do it, but each of us is, is not very good at the other one yeah. job. So that's just in order to survive a day. And we did that with injuries. Uh, I'll, uh, Cap, I'll, I'll throw in one more thing that I think is relevant for like startup teams. Uh, debrief. Debrief is very important. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, have a cup of coffee, sit down, okay, what happened today? What mistakes have we made? And the rule that we have that came from the military for that uh, true debrief is not only be honest, but don't blame anyone else. Focus mm -hmm. on what you did wrong. Uh, very good. And if everyone buys into that, then you'll get into the truth. If you're saying, you stupid, whatever, I told you left, you're on right, I was right, you're wrong, we flipped. It will not be helpful. It may even happen, but said, you know, I, I told left, but you might have heard right. Next time I will start the instructions 50 yards earlier and I'll ask you to acknowledge, for example. So I don't throw the blame on him, my partner. And I will assure you that as a team will drive better the next day. And I love when that happens with startups I think it is harder because there is politics and pay and fear. But if, if you're a great sales leader and now we are getting right to the heart of your audience, one of the best things you can do is instill a culture of, of true and honest debrief. And the first rule, blame no one but yourself. We'll get to the truth. You can do it, but blame no one but yourself. I love so that. I think that's, that's also kind of transferable to, to other areas. I can't help but listen to to what you were saying about you know in the military and also in in your in your racing, and how that has to have helped you with all the different options to think through when you're doing a therapy session with some of the founders of a company because of they think that they've sought you know thought of everything and you have to go back through that along the same time you have to you know align with you know the way in which they feel and and try to get them get them to the next step has to have paid off. Johnny, let me, um, I'm going to do, if you're ready for it, I'm just going to do some quick, uh, some quick takeaways and I'd like yours as well. Yeah, um, I feel like there, we could keep talking with Esau, but you know, no doubt. Time is moving on here. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, so one, a couple of big takeaways for me, the, um, the way that Esau talked about product market fit. I'd like everybody to go back and listen to that segment. Um, I, because I think people throw that around as a catchphrase, um, and it's really, really critically, really critically important. He talked about land and expand, and you know uh, we're increasing inbound. And so go back and go back and listen to that. I think that'll be very, very beneficial. I, I have a huge takeaway on humility. I just all kind of came to uh, uh, came very powerfully to me in the way that you talked about the attributes of really strong characteristics of people. I think it's also related to the last thing that you talked about in your military service and, and, um, and, you know, executing at a high level in these, in these desert races, planning and preparation, collaboration, and then debrief, like no matter what you do in life, like these are, 
high skill sets uh, and and execution categories. And the last one for me on the debrief one is I think one that we can all take away today. It's like, <clears throat> no matter what in a debrief, come, come with the mindset of own your mistakes. No blame. That was a powerful takeaway for me, Johnny. Yeah. What do you got? I also think that a lot of the characteristics that ESAR has been talking about go straight to, you know, great sales leaders that we've always tried to think about when we're interviewing. It's not so much the jobs that they've had, but we interview more of the characteristics, you know, the intelligence, the perseverance, being humble, the integrity um, and honesty that at the end of the day, that's what makes, you know, the great leaders and the ones that you keep versus the ones that you eventually have to ask to go <laughs> Go join another firm. So, hey, Isa, are you ready for a couple of uh, rapid fire questions? I hope so. <laughs> All right. How about your ideal day off of work? Uh, easy one. Racing. 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 There you go. In the desert. And do you have a, how about a favorite meal? And that could be when you're racing and when you're not racing. <laughs> Race rations. Yes. You know, I would have said like a really nice steak, but three years ago I became a vegetarian. So my answer today will be Israeli salad with like yogurt and uh fried egg. <laughs> and a fried egg on top. Yeah, yeah. Some, some carbs. Do you have a favorite movie you like? Oh, many. Uh, just to stay with the theme that we discussed, I thought Saving Private Ryan was a very, very possible. And for me, you know, you know, there were so many like Vietnam War movies, right? But they came with a cinematic like soundtrack and heroism and, you know, like, like orchestra playing while, while, you know, the bombs were exploding. That's got not real. And I thought they did a great job. Like the scene, first one, when the D-Day scene, no music, just like the sounds of the bullets Mm. And the horror and the fear, I thought it was so real. And I, I will appreciate what they did because I think it kind of painted war in a much more real and less favorable yes. way. So people will not be excited and seeking that, but actually seeking, you know, peace. Uh, that was a great, great movie. Yeah, that opening scene was terrifying. I, I agree with you. It was so realistic. How about a uh, favorite concert you've ever been to? You know, John, I'm I'm an ex-artillery guy. I, my hearing is terrible, so I yeah. suffer in concerts. I try not to go to concerts. Sorry, <laughs> not very fun. All right, I understand. So, Esar, do you have a, a favorite charity that you like to work with, or or one that you'd like to tell the audience about? Yes, I have uh, several. The one I would like to highlight is a place called Meet M E E T. And MEET stands for Middle East Entrepreneurs of Tomorrow. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually a program that is led by MIT students as volunteers. And they go to Israel and Palestine and they collect teenagers like uh, high school kids. They put them in collaborative groups. Every group has both Israelis. Oh, I've read about this. And they kind of teach them a little bit of uh, coding, technology, entrepreneurship. And those, those people over two and a half years of high school actually build startups. And eventually, many of those end up as an MIT students. A fantastic program that promotes like understanding and peace through something uh, positive. 
Wow. What a wow. great, people what a great know. mission. Now, just to be clear, you're taking people from both sides of the conflict areas and putting them into a common environment, giving them an opportunity to collaborate. Right. I mean, that's powerful. That's really it's special. Had, and it's, it's done twice a week. And then a long summer camp where the MIT students actually come in person. Great. Oh, it's, it's, it's real. It's not just, hey, I shook the, the hand of my enemy and I feel better about myself. No, it's like do real work together, uh, have conflict for sure, uh, overcome those. By through that, you'll understand that the other person is a human being and worthy of, of, of uh, you know, uh, of everything that you're worthy of. Well done. Yeah. We'll make hey, sure we so put that Cap, in the show notes. Yeah, you should. Cap's going to wrap up, but I want to thank you for sharing your story, telling some, some really good stories, especially one that I've never heard before. And, uh, you know, Thanks I'm very grateful. A lot you. of fun. A yeah. lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Isar. Yeah, Isar, I, you know, we, we, I haven't had the chance to to meet you before. When we do these podcasts, I always get the feeling like we only scratch the surface on the depth of really your character. And I, I hope you'll allow us to have you back to talk about some some other things. But thank you for sharing kind of not only the business aspect, but the you know the human aspect and in your comments. It's just you can tell there's a lot of depth there and. And I just appreciate you for, and it's that humility thing. I really appreciate you for being so open with us today. So thank you for spending time with us. And uh, we just wish you just continued success. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Pleasure. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 